and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great guest today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for giving us your time. We know it's your most valuable resource. And we appreciate all of you who continue to share these conversations, whether it's on social media or you text this conversation to a friend or you email one of our episodes. It really is how we continue to build our base. If you know me, you know I'm a relationship-driven person and I love connecting with people. So if you like today's conversation, feel free to reach out and connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Brian Levinson. Or you can email me, brian at blevinson.com. Would love to hear from you and love to hear what you thought of today's show. Also, if you could go over to iTunes and write us a review, it really does help us expand our reach. Uh, thanks to those of you who have already done so. Go over there, write us a review. It helps new people that I don't know find the podcast. Now to today's guest. David Shapiro is somebody who I've got to know really well over the last couple of years. He's based in Boston, but he comes down to Washington, D.C. often. And we've had a lot of conversations over the years around social justice, equality, mentoring, leadership. And this conversation is a mix of all of that. And David's going to share his journey. We've had on a few of David's family members on the show. You're going to find out really quickly that David has a unique and pretty incredible family. But David is the CEO of a nonprofit called Mentor. And Mentor does incredible work. They are the unifying national champion for expanding quality mentoring relationships for young people. And for more than 25 years, Mentor has helped build and serve the mentoring field by providing a public voice, developing and delivering resources for mentoring programs nationwide, and promoting quality for mentoring through evidence-based standards, innovative research, and essential tools. 
With David at the helm, mentors' efforts to build capacity and scale innovation within the mentoring movement have been highlighted by the Social Impact Exchange, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and grant makers for effective organizations. During his tenure, Mentor launched In Real Life, which is a national mentoring public awareness campaign with the support of the NBA and has worked extensively with the Obama administration on the mentoring component of My Brother's Keeper. David has done incredible yeoman's work in the mentoring community. He's an amazing leader. I'm not even going to get into some of his other work in the nonprofit space. I'm going to let him share his journey and his story. But just know that David is one of my favorite people that I get to interact with every day. And I do believe that we all have a superhero inside of us. We all have a genius inside of us. And I think we're all fortunate to have David doing this work where he really serves as a servant leader for those that are in communities that need mentorship, that need people to superpower them and to supercharge the work that they're doing so they can make an impact and ultimately make this world a better place. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you a mentor, a friend, a leader, David Shapiro. David, excited to have you on the podcast it's it's awesome. We we've been talking about doing this for a while now, and we were trying to make it happen in person. But your schedule is crazy. I know you travel a bunch, and when you come to Washington D.C., you're working and you're you're doing big things. So we do what we do, and we make it happen. And and so I'm happy to have you on this platform. And we first met in Israel. We were both in Israel with another nonprofit called Peace Players, and your dad Ron, who's been on the podcast. Uh, your brother-in-law Eric, your half brother—how do we call Will? What step brother? Step brother, yep. your step brother Will. I mean, these are people that all would talk about you nonstop, and they'd all say, "Brian, you got to connect with David." <laughs> and we do in Israel, and our poor wives probably had to listen <laughs> to us chat and nonstop. And uh, but I'm excited to get an hour with you to to do what I love doing. And every time we get together, it's it's always so easy to chat with you and the work that you do is so important. So I'm excited to give a megaphone to the work that, that you do. But where I'd love to start is back to growing up and your, your sister, Julie, and I have developed a, a close relationship over the years. So I know Julie real well, um, but I'd love to find out what life was like for you as a kid growing up um, in Baltimore and, and what that experience was like. Paint, paint your upbringing for people that don't know you and don't know your story. Yeah, first of all, um, just thank you so much for having me. Any platform is a privilege and being with friends on a platform is the ultimate privilege. Um, and as you said, persistence is a quality both you and I have. So uh, I knew we'd get it done and we finally did. Um, I, you know, I mean, growing up for me, right, as someone who works with lots of young people and works a lot on the conditions of young people, for perspective, one was one of great stability and security and unconditional love. Um, I had the things that allow young people to discover, to feel purpose, to feel belonging. I think in addition to that stability, I also fit an archetype, which I definitely didn't realize until later <laughs> in where I went to school and the things that I love, sports and academics and politics and all of those things. So. I would have really had to screw it up. That's for one, in terms of my upbringing, I now realize in, in hindsight. But when I think back on it in the moment, um, I'm the youngest of four. Um, and I got to learn a lot from both the mistakes and the 
successes of my siblings and by watching. Um, I had to learn a lot about flexibility because as the youngest, you're always meant to fit into any puzzle. Um, you don't get to drive the agenda. You fit into everybody else's. What's the, um, what's the age difference between you and your siblings? Yeah. So my brother, who's the oldest, is eight years older. And then my sisters who are in between us, one is six years older than me, four years older than me, and then me. I, you may say I was like a pleasant surprise, uh, but I was. Um, they're all two years apart, and then I'm four years apart. So quite a gap. When did you feel like you really were able to connect with them? And obviously your oldest brother, eight years is a, you know, he's 18 going off to college and you're 10. When did you really feel like you were able to cultivate relationships with your older siblings? Yeah, they, they all took on really different roles and a lot had to do with their personality. The sister closest to me, Laura, was a born teacher and mother. I mean, she wanted to be a caretaker and an educator from birth, I think. And so um, she was always like that for me. I mean, she always, she gave me love. She set up, you know, fake classrooms and projects for me to learn in. I mean, Laura was always around for me. Um, Mark, sort of as the oldest, he felt connected to me from the beginning, but he was like part dad and part brother because of the years gap. He He always felt like he was molding me and giving me access to older guys and just kind of letting me hang around. And I idolized him, uh, but it was definitely like dad and brother. And then Julie kind of fit in both, both things. The one thing I would say about all of my siblings is that because of the gap, there was not a competition thing. Uh, and because I was the youngest of four, I think with my parents and with my siblings, when you're the youngest of four, everything is ratcheted down in terms of people's concern that you're going to compete that you're going to die. You know, I mean, just the fragility of everything is a little bit ratcheted down because they've been through it before. So it was just a much more relaxed, accessible, you know, my father was at a different point in his career. He was feeling secure. Everything is a little bit tamped down. And so they gave me access to everything. Um, and I interpreted a lot on my own uh, because the world wasn't being dictated to me. I was getting to see it with my own eyes. Um, just less breakable. You know, they felt less breakable. Everything felt less breakable. I will say, you know, my parents, as you know, get divorced when I'm 10 or 11 years old. Then my dad gets remarried when I'm in my early teens and I'm introduced to three new brothers and I'm introduced to going from being the youngest to being the oldest. Uh, my dad sometimes jokes that I'm the fulcrum uh, because I had both those experiences. So that was interesting too. Yeah. And what was it like for you having these stepbrothers and shifting the dynamic as far as how they interacted with you. What Talk about that dynamic and how that impacted you as a leader, as a father, as a man. I'm just curious about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a, it was a great opportunity, one, to go from being the youngest to being the oldest. You know, I, I, I had studied that for a long time. <laughs> and so I think to your point about the things that translate, um, uh, you know, I've thought a lot about in my professional career, uh, what you do when maybe you're not the guy or you're not in the spot you want to be in um, and how you learn and prepare for the moment that might come. Um, because you can always learn from whatever experience and position you're in dynamic wise. Um, and it's really easy to just criticize what you would do if you were in that seat. But there's a difference between being critical and studying. Be a studier. Be a student. Don't be a critic. They're, they, they aren't that far apart, 
but one is a lot more constructive. And it says that you expect to be in that seat. You expect to have that chance. Um, not that you're just pushing against something as a counterforce. And so I was kind of prepared to be the oldest because I'd been the youngest and I'd really watched and learned. Um, I would say the, the, the harder sort of education of those two households um, was I was in one place with like living with my mom, you know, because most of my parent, my uh, siblings were off to college. And in the other place, it was very much like a nuclear family structure feeling. And so the structure of one, the, un the non-structure of the other was a, <laughs> a fascinating tightrope back and forth to adjust to both. Um, but, you know, you just learn to be pliable. And that's a big part of my, my are life. You, are you more structured or, or unstructured? I mean, I, I think... I think what I've learned as a leader is that everybody has a need for a different thing. So you got to figure out how to not structure your place around what you need. Uh, yeah. If I lived in an Island all by myself, I would be unstructured. I am more energized by a, a lack of routine. I am energized by surprise. I am energized by things that are thrown at me. I like to put out fires. Um, I am not energized by routine. Some people are so energized by routine. I am not, but I know that we need structures and we need routine and not everybody's like me. So it's amazing you say that. So the people that are, are listening to this are not going to watch the video. So I'm going to paint the picture for them. David is holding a baseball in his right hand <laughs> as we talk and he's just holding that baseball. And I, I, I can't, not talk about you and now it's in his left hand i can't <laughs> not talk about david without bringing up baseball and also when we talk about routine i don't know your oldest brother but your oldest brother is president of the toronto blue jays and uh was that with the cleveland indians and um so he, he's involved in baseball and from the outside looking in seems to value structure maybe i'm wrong about that um, he's nodding his head, so I'm right about that. But yeah. I do know your dad, who has become a mentor to me. And for those that don't know David's dad, Ron, who we've had on the podcast, you know, Ron is an early riser, uh, workout every single morning type guy. He talks about napping in his office. Your dad comes off as very structured and disciplined. And, you know, he talks about preparation. And so, I'm curious once again, how maybe your older brother and your dad had a role in maybe your desire to be maybe more, I don't want to say into, but you said energy, you get more energy from maybe surprises and new things and being creative and whatever, whatever however you want to attach that. Just give me some more context into that. Cause I think it gives us some insight into who you are and how you've come to be. Yeah, it's a great question and a great insight. It just shows your knowledge of my, my family. I think, so I would say two things to characterize those two guys and then to place myself somewhere in there. You are right about my brother. My brother loves structure and he loves process. Um, he's the oldest. <laughs> so, you know, that makes a lot of sense. He was first, there was only him. But what I will say is my brother uh, in the chosen career path he has chosen, the reason why he is so successful is that there is a ton of emotion and a ton of uncertainty in the business that he chose, sports. 
not that there's not that those qualities in every business, but there are a lot more when you're running a public trust that's full of emotion and opinions and all the rest. The only way, in my view, and I've been tutored by him, but the only way to mitigate the amount of emotion and the amount of interest in that profession and to actually have process is to create structure <laughs> so that you can replicate doing the same things over and over and saying, why are we applying a different lens to this moment than the last lens? You will still go with some gut, but the more you can remove gut and emotion in his business, the more you can be successful. And that's why he's so darn good. He was made for the moment. He never thinks he's as smart as people think he is. And he never thinks he's as dumb as people think he is. Like he's just internally validated by his team, his process, his structure. He's the leader for that moment. He and I both subscribe to something called the leadership moment, which says that there is no recipe for great leadership. There are people for different moments and different environments, and he is made for that environment. My father is interesting. My father prepares so that he can rush to the nearest burning building. He is a preparer and a structurer, but he is energized by the things that are unexpected and they're thrown at him. So it's really just a means to an end with him. Um, he knows what works for him. He tries to say, don't take anything for granted. Don't believe that just because you did it last time, you could do it this time. Don't freelance it. He is, it, it, it's interesting in today's world and with young people, especially, there's something about being casual, something that's really valued about being casual, about acting like you didn't have to prepare. My dad's the opposite. <laughs> he has a large currency on preparation, but he still does love to rush to the moment. I, you know, I'm some of what of an amalgamum. I'm a child of tremendous, you know, privilege and good fortune in that I just get to pick a little bit from lots of people um, and they've been willing to let me pick from them. And so, yeah, I think I'm more probably in my dad's standpoint, um, but I have to constantly counsel myself not to, um, not to make it up as I go along, you know, like I'm drawing from things from the past. I'm trying to surround myself with people that love process and system because matched with being able to be the person for the moment, that's really strong, but I don't want it to be dependent upon me making it up in the moment because that's not sustainable. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I think we had similar upbringings in a lot of ways other than the divorce. Um, and we had dads who were successful, but not just successful from the outside looking in, but also in how they were raising their family and how they were living. And it, it's my older brother is also very process oriented and um, systems and routine. He stayed over last night and he went, you know, he goes for a run, he runs marathons. Like, I, I think this is probably why we hit it off. I think we're, we're similar in that if you're around that environment, you're going to have some of that inside you. Well, at least not necessarily. Neither of us ran away from that. Right. But, but around them, maybe we're not as structured, but we still can value that. Like I can remember being on vacation and I was the guy that was like, can we just chill? Like, do we have right. to, do we have to go everywhere? Like, and I became the chill guy. But if you ask my friends or the people I went to college with, they'd be like, Brian's not chill. <laughs> like, that's not right. Brian. So I think the ability to be in different environments, and to your point earlier, to lead people, you have to understand what they need to be their best. And then how do you create an environment that allows them to thrive? And it sounds like that's been part of your success. 
I want to talk about baseball for a second. So to give people some context, David's dad, Ron, at one point was the agent for 22 of the 25 Baltimore Orioles, uh, worked with Cal Ripken Jr., who for me growing up outside D.C. without a baseball team, you know, posters of Cal Ripken on our wall were, were pretty, pretty normal. And um, so talk about sports and being around sports. How did sports impact you and, and your experience and, and what you did as a kid and being around baseball specifically? I would love to know how sports impacted you as a person. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in two distinct ways that I can think of, uh, maybe three. But one, um, the humanization of heroes um, was a very early lesson, you know, um, in ways that were really helpful <laughs> and made human beings both uh, less apt to disappoint me, <laughs> quite frankly, um, and also less intimidating to me and inaccessible that like these guys that people worshipped were Mike Boddicker was living on our pullout couch with his wife and a baby in a crib and pitching in the American League Championship Series. Like, it just made it all, it made them really human um, in their flaws and in their, you know, and in their credibleness. Um, so that was, that was helpful, the humanization of heroes. I would say, um, two, was the way in which my father um, and the people around him valued the people who worked behind the scenes in sports just as much as they did the players. Um, Jerry, the usher in our section, uh, Lee, the guy who ran the parking lot that we parked in. Um, my father spent as much time talking to those people about their families as he did to Cal. And so it just kind of set up that scenario for me right away that like what you see on the field, there's a lot happening behind it. And those people need to be equally as valued, even though they will not be in the public eye, but they can be in human to human contact. So I had a sense of the entire chain of humans that make something happen. And then three in my own life, um, and it began my professional journey as well, the most egalitarian, most inclusive, most diverse spaces I found myself in in Baltimore City were always because of sports. Um, whether that was you know, white kids from the county playing Putty Hill baseball or, you know, living in a predominantly black city. But if I'd played football against St. Paul's school, it wouldn't have been that case, but we played Poly and City. So you actually saw what the city looked like and playing on an all-star team, you know, being one of very few white kids on the city all-star team. But it was just one of the only times I really saw that. Going to Amherst College, the most diverse group on the entire campus was the football team. Um, and playing there and just, you know, those were the most inclusive and diversive settings. So it made me think about the way sports promotes that I'd say fourth, and then I'll be quiet. I know I said two, and then I said three, and then I said four so speaking to my great love of structure. Um, I think the platform, my father always made a big deal about the platform that it provided his players. And I watched Eddie Murray create the Kerry Murray outdoor center and, Cal Ripken do the city that reads and, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and so when my first job out of college is with the Tiger Woods Foundation, it's very much, you know, akin to this experience I've had of the platform that sports can be used for. Uh, the first point that you made about heroes and when you can touch a hero, you can see yourself as a hero in the future. 
I've had so many people on this podcast that talk about that. And so I've had professional basketball players that will say they didn't realize that they could play at a level until they saw a guy from their community go off to play college basketball. And all of a sudden they said, Oh, he can do that. Well, maybe I can do that. And I've had on business people who, who get introduced to somebody along the way and that person helps them realize that they could be more. And we both had heroes from the outside looking in, in our house. Uh, people would look at them and say, wow, that person is doing special things. And so we were blessed with that. Um, but many people are not. And so this is where I'd love to talk about mentor and the work that you do, because that first piece, I, I can't stress how important that is. And I think that's one of the reasons why growing up in certain communities provide you with such, look, there's a lot of reasons why there's unfair advantages that exist in certain communities and not in others. But one of them is the ability to touch a diverse, I'm not saying diverse people, but diverse jobs. And so like in my community, I saw a doctor or a lawyer or a business person or, you know, whatever they might've been. And I was like, oh yeah, that person's dad does this or their mom does this. Like, so if they do that, then I can do it. And if you can't see something, it's so hard to be able to put yourself in those shoes, especially when you're a youngster. So talk about mentor and what mentor does to try to give people access to quote unquote heroes. Cause by the way, the heroes can be the parking lot attendant. It can be the usher. Uh, it doesn't have to be that big, but I love the idea of opening up possibility. And when people start to see that their world isn't one-sided and for example, they don't have to just sell drugs or they don't have to do X, Y, and Z or, or play ball. They can go code or they can go do this. So talk about how mentor helps develop that in our youth. Yeah. So I think you really hit on two things and then I'll go to mentor, but representation representation really matters. <laughs> and you hear a lot of white men say, why does it matter so much? And that's because they're white men. Um, but a lot of young girls think they can be politicians because of Elizabeth Warren. And it's really hard if you didn't see that. Um, just like a lot of, you know, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of kids growing up Muslim who think they can be Ilan Omar. But I mean, like, you need to see it, like you said. So, Representation matters. Sometimes you can see it through a TV screen, but to your point, or a computer, but it's even more powerful if you can touch it and feel it in your community. And then a sense of purpose and belonging and, and possibility for you. And that might even be the harder part because I'd say because of the access to information, um, it has become easier to see representation. The idea that there's purpose, belonging, and opportunity for you is what is harder to come by. And that's where mentors, everyday mentors, come in. What you have here, and I want to be clear about it because I think it's something people lose a lot, you do not have an absence of love and effort in certain communities. That's not what's going on at all. What you have is a set of people who love their children so fiercely that they're working too many jobs. I'll talk to anybody driving a taxi or an Uber and you'll find this out. Guy will tell you he's driving 16 hour shifts and you'll say, when are you with your kids? And he'll say, I'm doing this for my kids. And then it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, and two, uh, if my mindset is that my job is to keep you alive, fed, clothed, out of the harm's way of the police, 
out of the harm's way of other things that could be going on. It's very hard for me to imbue you with a sense that this world is your oyster and whatever you want to do is possible for you. That is not because I don't love you. It's because I am living in the fierce reality of what it means to raise a boy of color in poverty, to use one example. It's my reality. So one, we need to take off a lens that judges the effort or love of others. What mentors can do when you are able to insert another adult into a kid's life who is not responsible for feeding, clothing, keeping alive a young person, but is responsible for simply spending time being present, listening to hopes and dreams, trying to resource broker and make things possible for them. It's a wholly different role that in a family where everybody may be already telling that kid that, like you and I grew up in, may be less impactful. But in a family where everybody is trying to get through the next hour can be really impactful. I've heard so many young people tell me that their mentor was the first time someone said to them, like, what do you want to do? And it was completely daunting because in their household, everything just had to happen. But someone said, well, what do you want to do? We can do anything. And it was like, oh, my God, this is the most ridiculous question I've ever been asked. What am I supposed to say? But a lot of families don't have the luxury of asking that question. So mentors have that ability to listen to the truth of young people, to hear what they want to become, to give them that one-on-one attention, to step up in a way that the people who are just trying to keep them alive, frankly, can't or aren't in a position to, and then to connect them with those opportunities that may be in their community, may be outside their community, so they can start to form a sense of their own idea, purpose, belonging, and what they want to be, and then knock down barriers. Because you said it, you kind of quickly said it, but society has set up a bunch of freaking barriers <laughs> that make it hard for some of us more than others to, to get, get to certain places. We're going to come back to this, and I have an experience as a mentor, and I want to, I want to get your thoughts on it. But I want to find out, you said the first job that you did out of college was Tiger Woods Foundation. Why were you drawn to this type of work? What, why, why did you start there? Yeah, I was looking for that intersection of sports and public service. I, I just, I, I thought about teaching and coaching. I'm, I'm old enough that, you know, mainly the option then was private school and I didn't want to do that for a variety of reasons. Um, there wasn't kind of Teach for America and other pathways into public schools. Um, but I, I was just looking for this intersection of sports and public service uh, knowing that those environments had been more equitable and, and just more places of opportunity for all different kinds of people. I was intrigued by the game of golf, which I had judged as completely uh, exclusive and not one that drove sort of egalitarianism, which I was eventually learning I was wrong about in certain, certain ways. Um, and I was, you know, uh, intrigued by the way this guy was going to use his platform to do that. I was also, again, someone who was privileged enough to have access to get, get in the door and get a job with them at the very beginning of them trying to figure that out. So those were a lot of the reasons. It was the intersection of a lot of things I was thinking about. And this is why, you know, sometimes when you meet people, you, you just know they're your, they're your people. And uh, when we first met, I knew, I was like, yep, that's my person. And I was warned, <laughs> like I was told uh, by a couple of people that, oh, you're going to love David. When I graduated from Syracuse University, which is not Amherst quality, I love I love my Syracuse people. Yes, it but, is. Yes, it is. <laughs> but, 
know, it's funny I say that because I went there with another person from Baltimore, Carmelo Anthony, and I joke that <laughs> Carmelo and I are the reason that Syracuse won a national championship. And since that time, has become a much harder school to get into as a result <laughs> of that. Uh, so, so you know, it, it, I I probably wouldn't have gotten into Syracuse today with my grades, but that's neither here nor there. Back back to the story, which is I graduated. Uh, I majored in sociology. I minored in African-American studies and political science, and I wanted to do Teach for America. And I applied, huh. and I did the, I had to teach a class. I remember I taught the capitals in the U.S. and made a map and thought I crushed it, and they just said, nope, sorry, you're not in. Like, they just, <laughs> they just rejected me. And, man, it was, it was a really valuable experience because I think when we get rejected early in life, it, you learn about yourself. And so I'm grateful that that happened, but it set me on a different course than probably the course I would have been on, which in all likelihood would have been a similar course that you, you went on because I cared so deeply about inequality and I, I, I was exposed to some aspects of it as well uh, when I was in high school and just saw it and was kind of baffled by it. And so I'm curious for you as you work for the foundation, was there a time where you said, I don't know, maybe I should be doing something else or want to go a different direction or why stay in the nonprofit world or, or go into a different sector? Talk about if you could connect the dots from Tiger Woods Foundation to mentor, I'd love to know the rest of the journey and, and what went into the decision making to, to stay on that path. Yeah. Uh, I think a couple of things. I mean, one, um, I, there's a very special thing that happens to you when you work at a foundation, which is that you're the light, right? And nonprofits are the moths. They have to come to you. They need what you have. It's a, can be an insidiously negative thing, but it's a, it's a tremendously positive thing if you're trying to learn about what's going on in the sector and what's going on. So I had no real sense of what the nonprofit sector was. Like my dad served on boards. I thought what you did was, amass wealth and power, and then you helped raise money and sit on boards of nonprofits. I never thought of the practitioners, the people actually running nonprofits. It wasn't something I was thinking about. You go to this foundation, we have money. It's very new money. So everything from a retired guy in the badlands of Philadelphia comes to you for money to teach kids golf to like the Bridgeport Board of Education wants to start golf for middle schoolers. I mean, and then West Virginia wants to improve their public courses. Like it was such a large group of public and nonprofit actors coming to us that I just got like an amazing crash course in seeing everything um, through what became the USGA Foundation, you know, and, and Tiger ended up doing, you know, the Learning Center and First Tee came into being and it was just right at the height of all this going on. So just got to see so much. I, to your question, yeah, I was distracted. I was distracted by professional sports, um, mostly just to satisfy the curiosity of being in the business that my brother and my dad were in. I did go work for the Indians in player development for a year. It's an incredible year. Um, I learned a lot about systems, <laughs> how you make something translate from a Dominican academy to the major leagues, how you have a system that runs through all these places that players go, how you create accountability between staff and players for their development. I mean, I learned a ton in a year. It's like an MBA, real world MBA. But I was always intending to bring that back to the nonprofit sector. And what I learned working in baseball 
was the difference in the way your heart can beat for something. I had been frustrated with the way things some way some things worked in the nonprofit sector, but that frustration was also an expression of passion. I didn't realize it at the time. And then when I went to baseball, it was like, I mean, there's a thousand guys on a bar stool that want my job. Like if the guy doesn't throw 95, I don't know that it's going to matter. I mean, I just, it was very easy quickly to be like, you know what? My heart doesn't beat fast to this. I'll work 20 hours a day. Cause that's what everybody does. But like, I actually love baseball more as a fan than working in it. I think I love it too much almost to work in it. And I just didn't want to do that. And so a year later, Bud Black used to always joke. He's a friend of my brother's and was with the Indians. He used to always walk around spring training and say to me, what's the over and under on David? He like just could tell talking to me that I wasn't going to stay for a long time in baseball. And I didn't, but it satisfied that curiosity. I needed to do it. And I learned a lot. And then I just, as I learned more about the nonprofit sector and how hard it is to make these organizations run and run well, and how hard it is to rely on the completely um, hard to predict <laughs> nature of running an organization that depends on third party funders and payers for your work um, to basically ask people to part with their wealth in a society that's built on a financial system that's about wealth accumulation. Um, the conundrum of running a nonprofit, running it well, running in a sustainable, transparent, impactful way just became kind of the passion of my life. Um, and it was an opportunity to make the world more equitable. Um, and, that, and that just became what I wanted to do. And so since then, I went to the Red Cross uh, right after 9-11 to work in the local Red Cross in Boston on, in a fundraising leadership capacity. Then I went to our local affiliate mass mentoring partnership at a time when it was at its low point. And then I came to National at a time when it was at its low point. I sort of gotten into to turning things around and making the most of existing things versus starting new things. Um, and I really, I love that. What makes a great leader? I think uh, the ability to hold nuance, the belief that no one has a monopoly on the truth, the ability to toggle between realities and yet still have a values-driven spine. So I think you need to have a spine, but a flexible spine. <laughs> you know, I think you need to have some things that are true to you that if people saw you at one in the morning walking through your neighborhood or at nine o'clock in a meeting at work, you would be exhibiting those same values. They are, they are uncompromising in the way you live your life. But that you can't believe they are a monopoly on the way to do things. They are who you are. They are what you exhibit. But your job as a leader is to be consistent in your own values, but meet other people where they're at and be able to toggle between those worlds. What makes a great mentor? I think a great mentor is a lot about in order to be present, and I mean present in so many different frames, but in order to be truly present for a young person, you have to have a real good sense of yourself. You have to have an ability to be vulnerable. You have an ability to share your own struggles. You need to break the power dynamic immediately and be able to share power. You do that best by showing your own vulnerability. But you have to have a real comfort with yourself. And you can't be hung up on the success of this young person as your success. You need to be devoted to them, but it's not about you. <laughs> 
And the more you can get out of your own way and make it about the young person is the best way to do it. And you can only do that by really knowing yourself and having a lot of confidence in your own agency and being willing to discover alongside a young person. So that brings me to my first true mentoring experience. I was right out of college. There was a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called Hoop Dreams. And Hoop Dreams helped raise money for inner city kids to get scholarships to college. And then they had a mentoring program and they did SAT prep. They did a lot of different things to help uh, a community in, in D.C. And me and my best friend were living in Arlington, Virginia. And we got paired up with this young man uh, who was a junior in high school. And as, their, as his mentor, we were just supposed to stay in touch, grab ice cream, lunch, you know, just stay connected to him. And we would drive from Arlington, Virginia, for those that don't know, is an affluent area in Northern Virginia. Uh, I don't know the demographics of it, but there are a lot of white people um, to over a couple bridges, uh, first the Potomac River, then Anacostia, and we'd go to Southeast DC, which is mostly people that don't look like me. And uh, in neighborhoods that didn't look like where I was living. And we had this great kid. He was smart. He was driven. Uh, he, he knew where he wanted to go to college. And he was being raised by a, by a single mom who, once again, smart. What you said, the passion was there. The love was there. Was she also... Um, controlling and making sure that her son was not going to get into any trouble. Absolutely. And I remember we went to their house once to pick him up and he wasn't there. And so we texted him and we're like, Hey, where are you? And he said, Oh, I'm, I'm at a family barbecue. And we were like, we were supposed to, we had this scheduled. We we're supposed to do this. And he's like, yeah, my mom said I couldn't. And me and my buddy were like, okay. And we were 22 at the time and we just sort of said, all right, well, like if his mom's not into this, like we're not going to keep doing this 30 minute drive to this area that we are not all that comfortable in to keep offering our time to this young man. And it was very much about us. We, we definitely were focused on us and not able to see him and, and, and really be there for him. And I think that experience actually ended up, causing me to stay away from those opportunities in the future because I felt like my time was being wasted. And I, I've talked to a lot of people that are in mentoring roles and that's a common thread that you hear them say, hey, I'm doing this, but I can't get the mentee to buy in or whatever you wanna, however you wanna phrase it. What advice would you give to me at 22 uh, when I'm going through that experience to change perhaps how I, how I see mentoring in the future? Yeah. So I would first say something, you know, dorky, but it will play a little bit like, like a commercial for mentor, <laughs> which is the reason why mentor works with thousands of mentoring programs around the country is so that no 22 year old would ever have that experience unsupported and not have someone from a mentoring organization to process it with so that they could show up with their best the next time. Humans are humans. They're going to interpret human behavior in a certain way. Um, I always tell the example of like, Mentors who say this eight-year-old boy, I spend hours with him and he never talks to me. So I don't think he really is interested in me. And then like they find out from the social worker that the grandmother tells him that he, 
this guy waits by the door for him every time. Like you need someone to help you see what your eyes and your brain and your biases can't help you see. That's why quality mentoring programs need to be behind these relationships. But what I would also tell your 22 year old self is probably a little dose of hard truth that probably would be hard for you to process, but it's a slogan from a mentoring program that we work with one of our national partners, friends of the children, which says we're resilient so they can be resilient. I would have told you like, you know, your 22 year old self, you say you care about this. You say you care about that. Show me, show me. Is your time that valuable, man? Like how much disposable time do you have and how desperate is your life? Are you fighting to survive? And like, if you were a kid, would you listen to your mom? So keep showing up, like just keep showing up and see what happens. Now, if there's a point at which you feel abused and like, if there is no program behind you and you know, you feel unsafe, you feel abused, whatever, get out, but like show a little bit of resilience. Like the degree to which people talk with such great reverence for their own time and then sit on their ass and watch bad TV, like it's pretty amazing, you know? And I think we need to be challenged a little bit about that. I think we really overvalue to some degree our own time. Like, let's talk about what you're doing with your time. And like, if an eight-year-old boy isn't there for you to pick up one time, like, is that the end of the world? Like, show up again. He's eight years old in an incredibly fragile and dynamic situation that he doesn't have complete control over. And the one thing you can do that no one else potentially can do is be consistent, you know? So, I mean, I think about this a lot when I'm in traffic, right? You're in traffic, you're pissed off, you know, this is crazy, I don't have any time. There's a woman dragging three kids across the city in a bus. The buses are never on time and it's raining and that's the only way she can drop them off and get to her job. I'm pissed that I'm in the warmth of a car or delayed at an airport. This is not to feel guilty. This is not about guilt. This is just about awareness and about whether we're truly acting with the values that we claim to have. And so I would just say to your 22 year old self, Brian, like what part of you can't be resilient for this kid so that he can be resilient? Let's give it another go. So first of all, I love that. And it's helpful even now, because I think I still have a story in my head about that experience. That is the 22 year old version of me's story and not the version that I would tell myself today. And so it's, you gave me something to think on and I appreciate that. What sort of training do you think a mentor should go through? Because you said awareness. And for me in my work, everything starts with awareness. We have to create awareness if we want to create any kind of behavioral change. What do you all do to try to turn up the awareness of the people that are going to be on the front lines and are going to be out, you know, trying to help make an impact and, and, and change the world? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the training is very proportional and customized to different mentoring programs, right? So if you're showing up in a classroom to work on literacy with eight-year-olds once a week as a mentor, that's going to be a different training than if you're picking up a 16-year-old in his house to work on finding job access. But what I will say is, as a general rule, um, it's incredibly important that you, one, understand your role on both ends of the spectrum, that the mentor and the mentee are both trained and oriented to what is this role? Not assuming that we know how a mentor and mentee show up for each other. Um, that our covenant is clear, what it means to show up for each other and how we're gonna do that. That our biases are clear about what we think about each other, just get that out of the way from the beginning. 
if we can create a scenario where we are in partnership with family, network, parents, that is incredibly important. And then ongoing support so that we are not making our own interpretations about what's happening in this relationship is really helpful. Partnering strangers is hard, man. Then adding to that, partnering them across gender, generation, sometimes race, ethnicity, religion. This is hard work and we should do it with humility. The reason we don't do it with humility is only because of good intention and the fact that there is a natural version of this. The natural version of this is like the guy your dad introduced you to who became a mentor of yours. And that seems so seamless and organic that you think this should take that same form. But your dad, there was a context for that relationship. This is a relationship without much context unless we provide it. So those are all the structures. I mean, we have the elements of evidence-based practice for mentoring. There's a lot of standards and stuff, but those to me would be the human sort of traits and aspects that need to be in a good mentoring program and mentor. Who mentored you along your journey? And I would love if you could mention who they were and then what they did to impact you or, or how, they, how they impacted you. Yeah, I am a, a child and human of such relative um, stability and privilege. And again, every time I use that word privilege, it has to do with being a white man in America. It has to do with unconditional love my whole life. It's not about financial resources, although the lack of financial distress is a huge part of how you make decisions in this world and has a huge part of privilege. But I'm not just speaking about resources. Because I had stability and privilege, and most of the environments I was in were stable, privileged environments, so many adults showed up as mentors for me. Yeah, some of them were formative by, by virtue of what I cared about. So I can still remember in college, right? I went to college to play football and baseball. I made a conscious decision to play Division three sports so that I could play two sports. I didn't want to lose football or baseball. and my freshman year of football went a lot better than baseball. And easily these guys could have just let me limp along. But the football and baseball coach, which may seem, I mean, in a high school, that's no big deal. But in a college, it's rare they interact that much with each other. Got together and met with me together, together to say, if you focus on football, which is going better for you right now, here's what you might be able to do including like study abroad in college, if you want. If you continue to play both, we respect that decision, but here's how that might play out. Those guys cared about me as more than just a player. And, and they got together as like joint mentors as a village to help me think through a decision I might have never, ever made. I was just a kid who had a vision of playing two sports and was going to do that come hell or high water. And they knew that about me. They knew I was that guy who whatever I said I was going to do, I was going to do, and that it might actually be at my peril. What I might interpret as commitment might actually be perilous for me or not you, as much. What did, you, what did you do, David? I quit baseball and just played football and it went amazingly well. And I studied at Trinity College my junior year abroad and I was captain of the football team and it was great. I didn't miss baseball and they let me be a left-handed batting practice pitcher once in a while. Um, what, what did you learn from sports besides that mentor relationship? I'm curious what elements of being a player and an athlete at a high level, uh, are, do you, do you bring to your world on a day-to-day -day basis? 
I think you and I once had this conversation and you put it much more eloquently than I did, but I think the way in which you can prepare, like it is the most important thing you'll ever do, but once you get in it, you can't treat it like it's the most important thing you'll ever do or you won't do it well. You won't be free to slow things down and do them at an excellent level. So to control what you can control, um, to not judge everything by the outcome, which is hard because I actually don't think most people coach that way. So frustration for me about youth sports, which I'm involved in, is that like everybody maps backwards from the outcome and it's a terrible instinct that we have not to focus on the process. Um, and then I think third, just a character reveals itself. In that locker room, everybody knew which guys were for themselves and which guys were for others. And, you know, once we were on the field, we all played for each other. But it mattered who you felt was for everybody and who you felt was for themselves. And sports is very revealing that way in a way that's less complicated than the rest of the world. You know, the results process thing gets talked about a lot, but you're right. A lot of people say they care about the process, but they're not actually obsessed with it or, or embedded in the process. I had an interesting conversation the other day with somebody who works in sports, doing a lot of the same stuff that I do when I'm in sports. And I, was listening to the person talk and they were talking about all the results that their athletes have had, all the success by working with him, their free throw percentage went X and went up and did all this stuff. And I asked him, well, do you ever coach the coaches? And he said, no, because I'd have a hard time knowing what my success was because it would just be based on wins and losses. And I said, gosh, I think completely the opposite. Uh, like when I work with athletes, I am such a small percentage of what their success is. Um, I don't look at free throw percentage or their stats or if a golfer finishes top five or top 50. Like for me, my job is just to help cultivate the best version of them so they can show up and compete. And sports is hard and there's a loser and a winner. And like I can do all great stuff, but at the end of the day, their success is going to be their success. And I don't want my success to be determined by a batting average. I just, that doesn't resonate with me. And I know that to be true because I've worked with people with low batting averages and I know we've done great work and they haven't gotten the result. And there's a lot that goes into success in sports as your brother can attest to. Coaches, it's, it is the ultimate process. Like it is, what kind of culture are we creating? How can I unlock this person's potential? How can I look at the organization and the team and develop something bigger? What your brother is working on with the Blue Jays is to try to get systems, processes. It's, it will hopefully eventually lead to winning or help lead to winning. But any coach, just like I think any mentor, will realize that the person that they're serving success is their success. And they are there to help them get into whatever position they can get into, but they're not going to be the one that's actually going to do the work. And it's probably one of the reasons why I have, I work with athletes still, but I, I find the transactional nature of athletes probably for that year when you were with the Indians to be transactional. Whereas I'm more interested in that transformation, which is a long game, which is more complicated and complex. Uh, I can teach mental skills to help someone hopefully perform better. But what I love to do is get in the weeds with thought leaders and help them figure out how to answer big questions and how to 
how to see things differently and to screw up and fail and learn from that and grow from that and be there for that process and ask them the questions to help them figure things out. I don't know if any of what I just said resonated with you, but it, it was what was coming to mind for me. Yeah. I mean, it, it all resonates for me. It resonates for me in mentors role, which is to help other organizations run good mentoring programs. And a lot of people will say like, well, I don't understand. Where are the kids? What do you do? And it's like, no, no, we help other people be great and do this right. We help them get public money. We help them recruit mentors. We help them run a quality program. We are their servant leader for thousands of nonprofits activating human relationship and human connection. That is our pride. That is our product. That is the product we couldn't be more proud of. It's resonant for me in the question you asked me about being a great mentor. Is it getting a kid to Harvard? No, it's about being present. And then finally, I would say what I've learned from having family in professional sports, which you asked about that earlier, which is that is probably the one place where no matter how much you do right, the results matter. Like it's a business. You got to know that going in. There's nothing you can do. You control for everything you can control for, but it matters. But in every other setting, which is 99.9% .9 of sports. And unfortunately, we try to mirror what happens at the professional level. In every other setting, it should be a vehicle for putting things in humans' backpacks. So when a fifth grader strikes out and comes and sits down on the bench next to me, the conversation should not be about his swing path. The conversation should be about what it means to try hard and fail and get up and do it again. That's what I want in his backpack. And then if I want to talk about swing path and fundamentals, sure. And all these things have to be appropriate to development. But I feel like sports' greatest role, when it's not at the highest level, which is a different thing, is as a vehicle for putting things in people's backpacks that they can take throughout their life. I think you're almost 100% correct, but I don't think you're 100% correct. I actually think sports, Coach K's 38 and 47 when he gets to Duke. John Wooden struggles at UCLA. Bill Belichick, who I know your, fam your family is familiar with, struggles in Cleveland with the Browns, and then they move to the Ravens, and they end up winning a Super Bowl. So, like, I think the best pro sports teams do focus on process because they know that process will give them the best opportunity to get the results that they want. Now, will an owner have the patience and will a community have the patience for that process. That's a whole nother story for another day. Right. But in my core, I think it's actually no different. And we have to have that patience and the persistence. Like we don't just stay patient just for the sake of being patient. We, we want to be patient while still persisting. And yes, the results matter, but the way to get those results is by continuously developing better processes. And I think, especially in today's world where we live with instant gratification at, the, at our fingertips and we want it, I think the best sports organizations and we've been around it. We've been fortunate to know the guys at the Spurs. Uh, you've been around the people with the Patriots. It's not to say they don't care about results. They are just so obsessed with the process. Nick Saban with Alabama, who was fired by the Miami dolphins. Right. And, and like all he talks about is process. And so I, I, I think you're, you're almost there. I think, I think pro sports is actually, they, yes, they, they fire for results and they hire for results. But I think right. the, best, the best organizations understand that if the process is sound, we will put ourselves in the best chance to get the results. Doesn't guarantee it. Sports is complicated. There's luck. There's injury. There's all kinds of other factors right. that go into it. But yeah, I think, I think it still comes back to it. I think you're right. But what it also reminds me of in all these turnaround gigs that I've had at nonprofits is the way in which once the flywheel is turning, 
<laughs> it is so easy to stick with process, mm. but the cycles of dysfunction and failure are so hard to break out of. Take the Cleveland Browns because it takes someone to say, we know lots of things are broken and it's going to take time to fix lots of little tiny cracks in the windshield instead of one silver bullet. The person who says that has the leverage to say that and sticks with it is always going to be a prophet in their own backyard and they're always going to be resisted. And that's why there are these great cycles of failure and cycles. I don't actually think Alabama anymore is about Nick Saban. I think the next guy could show up and keep it going in my view. Um, same with the Patriots, same with anywhere that has built that kind of process. I mean, it's not totally idiot proof, but it, you know, but I think that, and that to me is a true success. You know, some guy told me your success should be judged by how your organization's doing five years after you leave. You know, that, that really is what speaks volume. So, but yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. I love it. So what do, what do you envision the next five, 10 years? What will change in the world of mentorship? What do you think? Where is it? Where is it going? What, what do you think it needs? Uh, you're in this world. I would love to just know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we have awakened ourselves. If I had to look at the, the two biggest awakenings to me that are happening in America that are relevant to mentoring, they're not happening across the board, but I see them more than ever before are the inequity that we're living with and what to do about it. And everybody's got different solutions, but it's a constant, mostly accepted point at this point. And the other is we lived in the first half of the technological age focused only on its positive impacts. And I think now we're beginning to look at the negative dark side of it. And, you know, human connection is part of the antidote. Um, and so, I think when you look at both the inequity of social capital and the way that that runs parallel to financial capital, the inequity of systems and the way in which who you know and what you know and where you go, as you said at the beginning, has a lot to do with your success. And then this notion that we are more divided than ever, but yet we have the means to be more connected than ever. <laughs> um, I think all of these things lead you back to the importance and centrality of human relationship and not just letting the chips fall where they may for our young people actually doing something about the human relationships that they're met with. So that to me leads, leads me to a very hopeful point about the continued explosion of youth mentoring in America and not just thinking that we need to be rugged individualists and everybody gets somewhere on their own and hope they're born in the situation where they can meet lots of people and have a lot of supportive relationships. And, you know, at Mentor, we have a lot of ways of activating on that reality as the glide path becomes a little bit smoother, whether it's public investment, private investment, people's time, awareness, policies, better, you know, programs, all those things. We're, we're kind of always readying ourselves for demand on the other side, but trying to create more and more demand. And there has been steady growth in youth mentoring. We're 10x the size of a field that we were, you know, just 15 years ago. Last question. What do you do to make sure that you're intentionally your best? You've got kids, you've got, you know, mentors, a big organization that you're running. You have to travel for your work. What do you do to make sure that you are running and operating at the 
the best speed that you can be. Yeah, I mean, if you can get the fundamentals right, right? I'm married to the greatest partner on the history of the planet. So I have a centering effect of um, the people I come home to uh, will always bring me back <laughs> to what matters. Um, and so that just is my center. That's my core. You know, I mean, it could be meditation for some. It could be, you know, scotch at the end of the day for others. I don't know what it is for people, but I've got people, I've got humans and they are centering um, and, and they are part of my every, every evening, every weekend um, and are a priority for me. Um, they keep reminding me of what's possible. Um, I think that the other is just to try to be really present. I think that's a really hard thing for me. I think something that was really always positioned to me as a good quality um, was multitasking and being able to do a lot of different things at the same time. And I just really try to fight the ins that instinct um, and try to be present with and doing whatever I'm doing. And that's really helped me be better um, and also not be always doing one thing and tortured by the other thing I'm not doing as well. Someone asked me, you know, a lot of times men who are about to have kids will ask me like, how do I be great at work and great at home? And my answer is just try to be good at both. You know, like, don't try to be great at both. Just try to be present and as good as you can be at both. Um, trying to be the best at both is is probably a stupid, you know, standard for yourself. Um, yeah, and then just authenticity. I just try to not be like impressed with myself, and I wake up feeling lucky every day. Really lucky every day. Awesome. Presence and presence are similar words and uh, they're, 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 they look like family members, but I appreciate your presence and I appreciate your willingness to be present with us and share your story a little bit, share the work that you're doing that is, is so valuable and, and, and so important. And you said people, like you are drawn to people and connection. And for me, I've, the older I get, the more I realize that those are the people that I want to be around. I want to be around people that love people. <laughs> it's like, I, there's two things I, I really love is people that are connectors and love connection um, and connect with the earth and connect with themselves and just connection and lifelong learning. Like the people that you said that in the beginning, like have that balance of knowing that they know some things and know that they don't know anything at all. And so mm -hmm. I appreciate your desire to continuously learn and, and also your presence. And I'd love to give mentor a megaphone. So if people want to find out how they can give to mentor or what they're up to or how to bring some of the elements to mentor pop possibly to their organization, where can they learn more about the organization and the work that you're doing? Absolutely. One thing we got right is our URL mentoring.org. You can't mess that up. So Go to mentoring.org. You can find out everything, how to build a mentoring program, how to donate, how to become an advocate with policymakers to get more funding and favorable policy for mentoring. But please go to mentoring.org and check us out. Check out if you have a local affiliate of ours. And um, I would invite everyone to be in their own way, an investor in human connection to your last point, Brian. It, it's there's a guy I know who talks about you. We don't leave a legacy. We live a legacy. If you want to live a legacy, then that's going to be in the humans that you touch and that you invest in. And the more in which they are not the regular people that you would come in contact through social circles and, and employment circles, 
the more and more and more in which your life will be enriched. Well, this has been awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. David did not disappoint, not shocked by that. Looking forward to next time you're in DC and we'll grab lunch and riff about all of this stuff and uh, looking forward to continue, continuing to help mentor however I can and uh, take on that mantle. And uh, just thank you for being you. Thanks to the organization for the work that they all do uh, and appreciate your authenticity as well. Brian, thanks so much. We, we both can play to our strengths and eat and talk. We're good at that. So that'll happen the next time we're together. If only this could be over food, our Jewish mothers would have been much more proud of us. Yeah, um, we'll do, we'll do like a spinning class or something and, and make our <laughs> wives, make our, our wives who are both, I think much more fit than the two of us. Uh, very, yeah. very happy. <laughs> so, what, a, what a way to close. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What mentors can do when you are able to insert another adult into a kid's life who is not responsible for feeding, clothing, keeping alive a young person, but is responsible for simply spending time being present, listening to hopes and dreams, trying to resource broker and make things possible for them. It's a wholly different role that in a family where everybody may be already telling that kid that, like you and I grew up in, may be less impactful. But in a family where everybody is trying to get through the next hour can be really impactful.